Welcome to Relay Chain, a podcast produced by Parity Technologies, where we discuss all things substrates, polka dots, and Web3. Welcome to the Relay Chain, Mona. Um, you're from Mellonport. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, yes. So, um... Thanks, Joe, for having me here. I am, or I was from Madamport. I was the co-founder of Madamport in 2016. Prior to that, I, I had a career in finance where I started off as a trader and market maker at Goldman Sachs for eight years in London. I then moved to the hedge fund world and became a, an investor uh, running a portfolio for four years. And then I tried to jump out of that and launch my own long short equity fund in Zurich with a much smaller amount of capital. It may seem big to us, it was about $30 million, but it was actually very small for the industry standard. And due to the size of that fund, I actually ended up having to shut it down after a year being swamped by the overheads and the operational and administrative uh, costs around that. So that came to an abrupt end. But one of the biggest learning experience from that was how inefficient the financial system is especially the engine that supports the financial industry and uh, being for the first time the one doing all the operations and dealing with all of that was a huge learning curve and a huge eye-opener into how these processes actually worked. So I went out of that experience looking to take a year out. Um, and in that year out, one of the things I was really passionate about was fintech and seeing like, you know, there must be something happening in the technology world that could improve these processes. That led me to blockchain, and that ultimately led me to co-founding uh, Melonport. Okay, so before going into like the inner workings and the problems just trying to solve, um, we're kind of addressing two audiences, and one group that comes into crypto, and they're kind of like, fuck the banks. And then on the other end, banks are looking at blockchain technology, but a lot of them are looking at like, we want blockchain, but... Uh, we don't want permissionless or public or censorship resistance. Yeah, like how can I use a blockchain in a way that doesn't disrupt me and kill my business? Yeah, Which, so yeah. <laughs> to get everyone on the same page, like why is banking and asset management valuable to society? And then why should banks be interested in open permissionless tools? I think some of the blockchain applications that are coming up in finance are hugely empowering to end users, to savers, to people who ultimately want to preserve the capital they work hard to earn. And uh, this can be done in like many different ways and it depends on what use case you're talking about, you know, within the kind of whole financial sphere of blockchain. We have always focused on asset management and asset management is usually preserve, you know, capital preservation uh, of some kind. So how do you invest your savings? How do you create a return on capital, which ultimately exceeds inflation? Because <laughs> otherwise there's no point. And how can you do that in a way where uh, you're not suffering for being a smaller player in the market. The way it works today is most of the top investment funds or that you could invest in uh, have minimum ticket sizes of maybe $5 million and they have huge caveats attached to them. There's huge fees attached to running an asset management firm. That means that this eats away at returns and ultimately it means that the barriers to entry in asset management are incredibly high. So when you think about what that means, it means that in order to survive past the first year, it's estimated you need to have about 200 to 300 million assets under management to survive as a fund manager or an asset manager. And if you think about that, then that means that you're not doing, you're not staying in the market because you're the best at what you do. It means you're staying in the market because you're big. 
So a great statistic I read um, in a report a couple of years ago was that uh, something like 95% of the world's assets are invested in 500 of the largest funds, which means that people go for bigger is better, not performance is better. And to make matters worse, the small guys can't get into some of the better funds or even see the better funds because there's no visibility. So what protocols like Mellon do is they completely dramatically reduce the barriers to entry. So setting up, managing, operating, regulating a fund can be completely automated by smart contracts. It makes the assumption that all assets are going on chain in some kind of digital format. And that's like a really long-term view we have, but it's something that we're, we fundamentally believed from day one. And it means that if you, if you take that assumption, that means that the cost of setting up a fund goes from several hundred thousand in several months to, you know, a few dollars worth of ETH and, um, and a few minutes. And that's ultimately what we believe we've done. We've reduced the barriers to entry. So hopefully now performances and track records can be on chain. People can easily access investable vehicles through Mellon protocol, you know, based vehicles. Ultimately, they can, they can transparently see and, or assess, you know, which managers or asset management strategies they want to be a part of um, and gain access to that easily, regardless of their ticket size, regardless of any other constraints and in a permissionless, transparent way. And what's the advantage of doing that in a permissionless, transparent way compared to some other record keeping? Um, well, you know, it's public and accessible for everyone to see if it was done in a private way, then again, it would come with restrictions of some sort. You'd need to probably be, you know, if it was done on some private bank blockchain, you'd probably only be able to access that data if you were a client of that bank. Um, maybe you could only be a client of that bank, let's say, if you had a minimum account size of $10 million and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, it's again, it's exclusive and we aim to be inclusive to everyone and anyone out there who wants to participate. Yeah, so when we talk about like tokenization of assets, uh, you're working a little bit lower in the protocol, like you're more tools for the coordination and not necessarily just like a, a tokenization platform. Exactly. Um, but what are the advantages of tokenizing assets? Because a lot of people mention liquidity as like the first one, but uh, Meltem, Demirs, and Jill Carlson did like a really good episode of their podcast about like why that's not really true. Can you talk about like some of the other advantages or if you disagree with them? Yeah, I mean, I, to be honest, like I, I see the advantages and the disadvantages of having these kind of tokenized assets or at least when that, the, the, the vehicles are less liquid, there can be quite a lot of negative or disadvantages associated with it. For me, what I get so excited about is not so much the transferability of the securities, but it's about what you can do within the tokenized vehicle. And I think that's where we really focus. Like, so often what eats up a lot of the overheads in the financial space is inefficient operational, administrative and compliance needs, right? So when you're managing other people's money, the regulators really put a big emphasis on making sure you don't run away with that mad, uh, money. You don't want another Madoff. You don't want another rogue tr trader situation because ultimately it impacts the retail investors who are the innocent people trusting you with their money. So. As a result, regulation has gone up, 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 up in the last few years, especially since Lehman. And as a requirement, banks and financial institutions and asset managers have to hire more people in order to make sure that they are compliant with those regulations. And all of this stuff is still done absolutely manually, paper-based or spreadsheet-based. It's subject to error because, you know, trades settle T plus two, T plus three. And it's incredibly expensive and inefficient. And very often, if you do catch a mistake, it's like three days later and it's already cost you a fortune. So, you know, what we're trying to do 
within the tokenized vehicles is also technology regulate and operate those vehicles so that the rules are pre-written in smart contract code and can't be breached from the outset. So it's almost like a pre-trade check enforced by the blockchain. Yeah, I actually have some personal experience <laughs> with this. Like I didn't set up a, a fund or anything, but even setting up like a small company that was managing investors' money in some way, um, even if it's just like buying hardware or some other asset to, to work with, like I could see very quickly that like you need a lot of investments in order to just pay the upfront legal costs. And yeah. I was like, I don't want to raise millions of dollars because this is my first business. I don't want to have that kind of responsibility. And so like yeah. for an asset manager, like it seems almost counterproductive to start out like, oh, I need $300 million because would you even want that? Exactly. That's not like a yeah. good learning experience. Yeah, absolutely. So like a really cool thing that you guys did is that you actually over-delivered on a two-year roadmap. Um, <laughs> and a lot of these crypto companies in the last couple of years said, oh, we're going to create this thing and then dissolve the centralized entity that controls it. And they never do. But you guys actually did. Um, it's in the process of being uh, wound down. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, well, first of all, meeting the roadmap was challenging. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm not sure we would ever commit ourselves to doing that again in such a public and loud capacity but um we got there and it was possible it was it was made possible due to a lot of personal sacrifice and hard work from the team and some really excellent teamwork in in some cases and the the team that carried us through to the end really really did an absolutely brilliant job um, but it did take a lot of late nights a lot of weekends a lot of you know a lot of sacrifices. I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> and we did we did deploy in Q1 this year and we did stick to our promise and we have started liquidating Melonport. We handed over the protocol to the um, Melon Council, which was put in place in February this year. The Melon Council, as you may know, it's a um, user representative and technically skilled group of people or entities that we initially selected. It's currently eight people, I believe. And from this point on, it grows by consensus. And the idea behind that is that the token model looked after two of the stakeholders in our ecosystem, namely the, the token holders and the uh, maintainers and developers. So those are kind of, you can put them in two buckets, developers and um, token holders. That left a very big stakeholder um, in our ecosystem, which was not represented or looked after in any way. Um, and that's why we came up with the idea of putting in place, you can call it an off-chain decentralized governance structure in the form of a consortium-based um, structure. And we we emphasize that this consortium has to be made up of technically skilled and user representative people because technically skilled, because it's looking after the security of the users. Um, and ultimately, you know, if they don't feel that uh, there are technically skilled people voting on decisions that impact upgrades and impact changes in the code um, versus like, say, token holders who are anonymous and may not necessarily have the right skill sets to be making upgrade decisions. And also you could have, you know, on-chain decisions which are made, which can affect the users. And in our case, which it's an asset management use case, you know, you have real assets and funds at stake which would just scare off, you know, any user. So that was the kind of thinking behind behind that, that the Mellon Technical Council or the Mellon Council, as we call it, is really there to represent the stakeholder group that had been underrepresented in, in, in our ecosystem. And which group is that? Sorry, I don't think you ever said the underrepresented group. The users. So like they would be either the fund managers themselves or the investors in the Mellon funds. Okay. So that still can 
kind of split into two it's, directions. It's split into two, but we, you know, you can generalize it as one because neither of those users will use the protocol if they fear that there can be some, you know, malicious behavior or malicious upgrades. Or the other element that we felt was necessary is making those parties known, publicly known, so that they're um, somehow held to some kind of fiduciary duty and some kind of reputational duty, because all of them are quite well-known people in the space and making sure that they, by being known, they have some kind of responsibility or feel some kind of responsibility to making sure they are doing what is best for the, for the governance and maintenance of the protocol. Yeah, so you put a lot of thought into like the token economics and the governance, yeah. um, which we've already started talking about, but can you explain some more of like the Mellon protocol and how the economics work? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, maybe just taking a step back, what support Mellon Protocol layer allow you to do? It's an infrastructure for any kind of asset management. I mean, it could be used for insurance, VC. In the past, we've focused more on hedge fund-like structures, but it can be used for ETFs, um, trackers. It can be used for, you know, we have Ash or Midas Finance building some kind of gamification app where people can challenge each other to battles on you know, fun performance and stuff like that. But you, you can basically use this infrastructure for any use case you want, um, which is within the asset management or management of assets on chain. So the assets have to be on chain? Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> they definitely have to be on chain. Yeah. And, uh, and basically what the protocol allows you to do is it allows you to set up some kind of collective investment scheme vehicle with a predetermined set of rules. So it allows you to determine things like what assets is this vehicle allowed to trade with? So it's kind of like, um, pre, you know, pre-selecting an asset universe, which decentralized exchanges can this uh, collective investment vehicle interact with? We currently have integrated with Zero X Relayers, Kyber Network, Oasis Dex, and soon Ethfinex. It also allows you to predetermine things like which Ethereum addresses can invest into this vehicle. So you can whitelist addresses if you want to, but you don't have to. It allows you to set some risk management rules, like what's the maximum number of positions this vehicle is allowed to take, uh, what's the maximum position size this vehicle is allowed to take, concentration risk, whitelisting, blacklisting, so on and so forth. But you can also add a fee structure and say, I want to charge 2% for managing this portfolio per year and you know, 20% performance fee. If I make performance, I want to take 20% of that as my fee for managing this portfolio. And this can go on and on and, and, and basically because we've built it in a modular way, you can keep extending these rule sets. Um, but basically, when, once you've selected your kind of rule set, you can then deploy that rule set to the blockchain and that becomes your fund address, your fund address, which is tokenized. And now Joe comes along, for example, wants to invest in that vehicle. He's already whitelisted or permission to invest in that vehicle. He just sends crypto directly to the fund address, which creates new shares in the vehicle, sends them back to you. And now the manager has those assets to invest, but can only invest them in a pre, you know, in that pre, in those predetermined ways. So with those asset universes, with those exchanges, you know, there's no, there's no kind of um, embezzlement or fraud that can occur where I can take them out into my private wallet and run away. <laughs> um, I can't spend them on, you know, handbags and shopping. <laughs> I can only basically trade in the way that the, the rule sets have predetermined that I can trade. Um, my performance is on chain. So the protocol also takes care of the fund accounting or the collective investment vehicles performance on chain. We, we publish the price feed every 24 hours and therefore the performance is, is recorded on chain. And also the performance and management fees are calculated by, via the smart contract and distributed to the manager whenever they call the function of claim rewards. Yeah, so that's how <laughs> that's how it works. Then you asked about the uh, tokenomics or we call it melanomics. <laughs> yeah, but um, just yeah. to 
Take interrupt you here, but like yeah. a lot of the things you said, you mentioned there in almost like a trivial way, like you send money to the address and then it just creates new shares. And yeah, all of these things are kind of done manually now. And like, I can speak from personal experience that like if somebody wants to invest in your company after you've started it, yeah. it's like another hundred pages of paperwork yeah. and contracts and you need everybody to sign and exactly uh, like just basically start over and it's a huge mess. And so just being able to take new investors or yeah. have people exit like this, depending on your rules is, uh, I, I know like you could save a very, like a small business, tons of money and just legal fees. Totally. Yeah. I'd say it would save you huge amounts of money. We'll get to that later though, because then you have to cross the whole, you know, a few other considerations, but absolutely. I mean, when you set up a fund in the real world, you need to put together a fund prospectus, a legal fund prospectus, which is often hundred, I mean, over a hundred pages long, which requires input from lawyers, a fund administrator, custodian, so on and so forth. And this basically are all the rules I've just, you know, elaborated on, but written in legal, you know, in legal speak, taking, taking up tons of lawyer capacity and, and fees and money. And obviously trying to fit into the regulatory box, the appropriate regulatory box and ticking all their needs. And what I sometimes say about Mellon is it's almost like an encoded fund prospectus. Like it's almost like all the rules you would get in a fund prospectus, but coded up and enforced by the blockchain instead of enforced by financial intermediaries. Um, but that does cause a little bit of <laughs> discomfort when you speak to institutions in the asset management or financial world, because they're kind of like so keen to get involved in blockchain. But then when they realize that actually, hang on, this actually displaces what we do, you know, they, they give up a little control. Yeah. Some are still open to it, but you can see a lot of discomfort when they start to realize, you know, so wait, this means that we would become obsolete. You know, I'm not sure we should be supporting this. <laughs> so it's a, it's a tricky one. Um, so, I mean, what kind of experiments have you seen? Because it's still very new, but it is functioning. So have you seen any of these funds try to experiment on it or yeah. put some of their assets under it? Yeah, we've seen uh, we've seen two funds, uh, crypto funds experiment, two well-known crypto funds ex experiment on it. KR1, or so they used to be called Kryptonite in the UK, have set up some tracker funds on there, which has been really cool. I think they were one of the first people to experiment with it, and they seem to be having... Uh, great experience so far, but they're sending us a lot of feedback, which is great because we realize it's still very <laughs> buggy and user unfriendly. And that's one of the big challenges in the blockchain space in general. Um, so we're working towards a new release to hopefully address a lot of those issues and hopefully it will become a smoother experience over time. Um, there's also another large, very large fund in the UK, which we, um, which we, I don't think we can really talk about, but they're, um, experimenting with it and they've been sending us a lot of feedback as well. One cool experiment we did recently, uh, was in collaboration with the University of Liechtenstein, where through their blockchain course, uh, they have a, some kind of blockchain course they teach their students and they, they did an on-chain finance segment. And, uh, as a case study, the, the lecturer brought in a couple of, um, a former Mellonport uh, employee to teach a little bit about on-chain finance, educate them about um, decentralized exchanges and the concept of what we call troughs, technology regulated and operated finance. And at the end of the competition, at the end of the course, they basically had to get into groups of six and set up Mellon funds, which interacted with decentralized exchanges like ZeroX Kyber Network and um, an Oasis Dex and trade and compete against one another for two weeks. And, you know, we're talking about very small assets under management here, obviously, but according to the students, it was one of the highlights of the course. And that was like an, an amazing success as an experiment because you got these guys just really, it's not just, a th it stops becoming just theory and it starts to becoming more of an insight into what the future of finance could look like. 
Um, and on the back of that, we've now had six requests from different universities globally asking us to come and give a similar course. So our challenge now is how to scale this idea because there's a few of us and there's a lot of them and they're all distributed all over the world. And we just need to figure out a way to scale this idea on a global basis. But ultimately, I think working from, you know, maybe kind of the younger generation up makes a lot more sense than trying to get the old school generation, you know, <laughs> accepting that they may be disrupted in the future. A decentralized finance academy seems like just another association to start on the side. Yeah, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe not even an association. I think maybe just maybe putting it in some kind of online form because otherwise it's not scalable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you mentioned DEXs and you're like exclusively trading through decentralized exchanges. Uh, how has that played out? And like, I haven't used a DEX in a long time, but they were at least really, used to be really slow. Yeah. Um, are there any like high frequency funds on there um, or automated well, trading in general? Without scalability, it's very hard to see uh, high frequency strategies working on Melon right now. It's um, easier to imagine discretionary strategies, you know, medium to long term strategies. Um, discretionary meaning like a human makes the decisions. Yeah, it could be an algo too. And we've actually played around with that. We have a few trading bots we've played around with in the past. But yeah, uh, what, what I mean is not anything that is not high frequency, basically. And uh, ETFs would work, um, trackers work. Um, but yeah, one of the challenges we have is we absolutely need liquidity to work on DEXs in the future or to increase and improve in the future. We believe it will, you know, we're obviously big believers it will, otherwise we wouldn't keep, we wouldn't be still doing this. One thing that we have done, which helps the situation a little bit, is for all the DEXs we've integrated, we've also aggregated the order books. So from a Melon user perspective, whilst they still know which exchange they're trading with when they're actually trading, they always see the, you know, the amalgamated bids and offers and therefore they can That's always- That's like a broker. Uh, it's not, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's just aggregated order books. So you can always see, you always get the best price and, and, and the full depth of the order book, not just of one single exchange, but of all the exchanges you have in, you know, permissioned into your vehicle. But Melon's routing the orders to the to the exchanges. Um, the orders are done directly with the with the, the smart contract to the exchange, to the exchange smart contract. But just from a user interface perspective, if you if you're interacting with the, the contracts through our interface or through the interface that we deployed in February, you basically see the order book in a kind of more user friendly way, and you get to tap into any bid or offer. You, you know you want in a kind of uh, more user-friendly way. Okay, yeah, now I understand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I should have mentioned that we also built an interface that was part of the project. And the interface, it's not something, it, it's not kind of our, it's not the thing that we're the most proud of uh, in our, you know, we, we, we were very focused on the protocol. Um, the interface is almost for us just a way for non-technical people to be able to test out what we've done on the protocol level. Um, but it's something that we'll definitely be focused on maintaining and improving over th over the next few years. Yeah, so like in a just kind of bigger architectural viewpoint, you're kind of sitting on the infrastructure of DEXs and then on like a higher level from you is all the tokenized things, assets, whatever they are. Um, you're kind of assuming those exist and able to trade them via DEXs. So you're yeah. a manager to connect yeah. all these. Yeah, so so the exchanges, I mean, the exchanges, the way it works is we just build, we've built adapters to connect the exchanges to our smart contracts. Um, we've had to build different adapters for every type of exchange just because, you know, every DEX works in a different way. Although 
there will be some synergies we can extract because some, you know, some DEXs do work similar to others. And then, yes, the asset universe, as it grows, we can add to the Melon asset universe um, as long as the assets are tradable on um, Kyber Network and we can derive a price feed from them. And yeah, and, and the governance is planned to be run on uh, the, the governance decisions. Most of the governance decisions will be run on Aragon. Um, so from a Mellon Council perspective, the votes occur on, on Aragon. Um, for most decisions now, although we're taking a phased in approach, so that will in increase over time. Yeah, so we actually started by talking about economics and governance and we ended up talking about uh, decentralized <laughs> exchanges. So yeah. now that we're back, can you talk about the the tokenomics and you have like a buy and burn model, I think yeah. it's called. Um, how does that work and benefit everyone? It's, it's very simple. So basically in order to transact with our contracts, when you call certain functions, you get charged asset management gas um, and that gas or the gas gets the total amount that the user pays gets calculated by the asset management gas units times the gas price, the melon gas price or the asset management gas price. So we preset the gas price. The, the gas units at the contract level, um, we've actually used the same notation of way of calculating gas, uh, gas as Ethereum does. So the same, you know, whatever the computational requirement is in gas units is for Ethereum, it would be for melon as well. We've just used a different gas price to multiply those units by. Now, we thought it was really important to remove as much friction as possible from the user and we wanted to keep costs low <laughs> in keeping with the whole you know, ethos of what we're doing. So we don't charge any um, fees on trading, additional fees on trading or anything like that. There's only three functions that are really charged. It's the uh, setup fund. So it's a one-off at the beginning. Um, we also charge, or the, the protocol, not us, <laughs> the protocol also charges on the invest function. So whenever an investor invests in a fund, they have to pay a small gas fee and we charge on um, uh, claim fees. So whenever the manager is claiming a performance fee or a management fee, they also pay gas. The gas is collected in ETH and sent to the Melon Engine smart contract. Basically, the Melon Engine smart contract sells ETH and buys Melon or, or continuously puts out bids to buy Melon. Once it buys the Melon, it burns it. So what you have there is a direct link between the usage of the network and the purchasing power or the, you know, the sync model related to the Melon tokens, the purchasing power of the token. It's pretty simple. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe easier with a picture also. Yeah, we have a picture. <laughs> okay. We'll we put a, a link to your, yeah. yeah, we'll put a, okay. a link to it. Yeah. Um, so you closed down Melonports um, yes. and now you're doing the multi or multi-chain asset management association. Yes. Mamak. Um, well, I've been doing that from the beginning, actually. Okay. So I co-founded the Multi-Chain Asset Managers Association, which we, we call for short MAMA, in um, October 2017. And uh, MAMA was put in place mainly because we saw some obstacles for some portion of potential future users in the fact that one of the questions we get asked a lot from the community are, how can I set up a compliant fund on Melon? And based on the rules and regulations that exist for collective investment schemes today, they require you to have certain restrictions or a certain, yeah, require, well, the requirements that are there by law, which were created for a completely different asset class in mind. So they do require that you have a fund administrator by law. They do require that you have a custodian by law. And that's down to the reasons we discussed before, because those guys, those financial intermediaries are supposed to be there to protect the end customer. So basically, in a nutshell, what MAMA advocates for 
is that if the technology can do the job of the financial intermediary the same or better, then why do we need to have a legal requirement that requires you know, a custodian or a financial intermediary. We take it a step further with custody. That's quite fun. And actually, I love having this debate with people. But we take it a step further with crypto and custody because the financial law often, you see, like with all crypto funds, they have to have a legal custodian. Which is actually a risk, not a Which protection. Is, <laughs> so it's supposed to be, I mean, if you think about the origins of that law, yeah, it was supposed to be a protection. Of course, it is a protection when you're talking about paper-based assets and certificates of equities and stuff. But when you're talking about crypto, it's like the craziest rule you could have for the safety of the retailer and, and investors, right? Then when you think about some of the custody solutions out there, I could talk about this for hours. Go ahead. <laughs> but, but then, you know, you, you want to pull your hair out some more because, you know, some of the custody solutions that some crypto funds use, for example, allow withdrawals to any address, including, you know, private addresses, etc. And that's just one of the most dangerous things you could have in a crypto funds, you know, allowing the assets to be withdrawn to any address. It's just got a recipe for disaster written all over it. So Mama really tries to educate and lead the thinking around this. We, we engage with uh, regulators, lawmakers uh, and institutions, and we kind of try to attract as many DeFi projects to the association as possible because we're all kind of solving the same, we're all advocating for the same kind of issues. Um, so we've been fortunate in order to have uh, 65 members, I think, so far. We've had some small victories last year, which we're very proud of, more on the European front than on the kind of US and Asia front. But I think we're going to start to uh, slowly dial up the volume there as well with some interesting partners who will be joining us uh, that will be announced soon. But yeah, we're, we're uh, you know, we've had some great um, feedback, which was provided to ESMA, which was provided to the European Commission, uh, which on the back of that, we're now in a working group, leading a working group on digital and open finance. Um, in that capacity, we provided feedback to the FCA, to the Swiss Federal Council. You know, there was a report published by the Swiss Federal Council last year, which had several pages devoted to on-chain finance. And one of the best quotes out of that 170-page uh, painful read <laughs> was that, they said that they, it was conceivable that in the future we can see a completely technology regulated and operated fund vehicle being run entirely by technology. Now, I mean, for me, that's one of the most forward thinking things, you know, any government has ever said. Um, Just that it's possible or conceivable. Yeah. Uh, most of them are still trying to figure out how to regulate ICOs, but like the Swiss are already moving on to, you know, the kind of use cases, which is encouraging to see. Uh, what were some of the victories you mentioned besides this? Okay, so in France, they made a call for um, feedback on crypto custody last year. We managed to team up with AFGC and the AFG. AFG is like the largest asset management association in France, where you actually have to, if you're an asset manager, you have to be a member of it by law. They um, are extremely powerful, extremely um, close to kind of the, the, the lawmakers there, not limited to crypto at all. They collaborated with us on the crypto custody piece and basically agreed with the stance that we took and, and, and presented it in the name of AFG to the, the finance ministry. The Swiss have been open doors. And like I said, you know, they, they, they published several pages on on-chain finance in the uh, December 14th report last year, um, which I think was very forward thinking and wouldn't have been there, I think, without Mama's feedback to the federal council. And I think... Um, 
we're making some good headway in Liechtenstein and Malta um, with pilot uh, use cases on on-chain finance with the support and backing of the regulators as well. Yeah, how do you deal with geographic uh, regulation? Uh, <laughs> tough. <laughs> it's tough. Um, we try to keep the, the, the operational costs of MAMA as low as possible. And that's why we try to mainly include members who have an incentive to to push and advocate for these kind of things. You know, it's, it's just pooling our resources together. Um, so what we're trying to do now through our new wave of memberships is we've made a little bit more uh, emphasis on US and Asian participants who can help us. And generally speaking, we're not just looking for a check to be written, but but for people who um, who have in house who are already doing things in house, you know, that advocate for these kind of um, policies, and uh, and basically instead of just doing it as a single entity, can now do it as a group, and it's a lot more powerful coming from an association which represents 65 people, 65 companies, than just you know one small company making a, a pitch about why something should be this way or that way. Yeah, so it's like changing regulations and hopefully changing for the better. Um, you mentioned earlier that like when you create a fund on Melon, you're kind of locked into these rules, right? And so uh, how do you deal with the, the state if like your rules become illegal after two years? How do you upgrade your funds to be... Well, <laughs> unlike in the traditional world, shutting down a fund becomes the press of a button. So it's, you know, you can set up a fund and, and start a new fund, which is compliant in, in a matter of minutes. Um, you just need, you know, you need your investors to redeem and reinvest in the new fund. But we can make that possible with the press of a button or two presses of the button <laughs> ultimately down the line. But it's, you know, it's still early days. And this is, this is a journey that will take several years, you know, to really fulfill our, our vision the way we really see it, because there's still so many frictions in the industry. Some of them are melon specific, but some of them are technology and infrastructure related that, you know, we all have to work on together as an ecosystem. Um, so you mentioned or in some of your blog posts for Mama that like there's a lot of self-regulation among the group in anticipation of state regulation down the road. For like a finance outsider, it kind of sounds like the fox is guarding the hens. What kind of self-regulation uh, initiatives have you seen among the members? So like actually we don't we don't do much self regulation at all actually we we just we're just an advocacy body we just try to raise awareness and steer the direction of which future you know future adaptations to the to the law will be made um and we're now really having deeper conversations with the Swiss Federal Council for example on how the, some of those adaptations may look um it's a slow process with you know, when you're talking at a federal level or with a governmental level, these things will happen, will, they will take time. But, you know, that's why Mama's there. Mama's there for, you know, 20-year 20, 20 journey to really handhold, um, make sure there's someone representing us and making sure there's not just the big banks sat in the room with the legislators saying, I don't think you should do this, it's too dangerous because who can trust technology? People want to trust the banks. We don't want to be subject to JP Morgan and Jamie Dimon setting the <laughs> rules of how the future is going to look. No, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> so it's just, you know, it's just putting a force out there that that, that, that challenges those views. Okay, so poor research or interpretation on my part. <laughs> um, so most of the Mellonports group went on to this group called Madiba. Can you talk about what that's going to do? So Madiba is a, a spin out of some of the former Mellonport team. And um, 
We are currently in kind of stealth mode. We'll probably be ramping things up September, October this year and making a lot more noise. We have one seat on the council and we hope to continue developing um, on the protocol level, but also building an application layer on top of Melon, which um, again adds to the user friendliness issues that we discussed. Because in the past, we've very much been focused on the protocol layer. I think going forward, we also want to work on the usability and build a product which is much easier to access for kind of a non-technical user and also uh, bringing in functionalities that can aid and, and help users which are not necessarily blockchain related. Yeah, so it sounds like the Mellon Council is kind of guiding the future of the Mellon Protocol and then Madiba will be using the Mellon Protocol. Yeah, um, you know, I think I think that there's still a lot of work to be done at the protocol level um, over the next at least two to three years. So I think Madiba will, you know, be interested in taking over some parts of that protocol development, given that um, we have the expertise and the credibility um, with that. Um, but that will be a Malin Council decision, I think, at some point, um, whether they want to allocate that work to us or to other parties. And at this point, we haven't made any official claims to, you know, to, to, or pitches for that work. We're just giving some time to the rest of the community to see who else is interested. Until now, there's been one grant made by the Mellon Council, and that was to a group called Midas or Ash Finance, which I mentioned before. Um, and they're the ones building the gamification kind of application on top of Mellon, but they're also adding on the protocol layer. They're building um, additional models, copy trading modules, and other kind of interesting modules on Mellon. Um, which, which is, which is great too. Um, but there's, you know, there's a pool available for other people to, to pitch in and make, and make proposals. So, <laughs> so we're just watching to see what happens and, and maybe towards the end of the summer, if, um, if there's room and once we're sort of back all out of the stealth mode, we'll, we'll probably be pitching for work there as well. I guess the last thing is not really a question. I just think it's really cool how so many dApps like will go to replace some middleman and they just change the fees from 20% to 2%. And you didn't do that. You just built the infrastructure to do that Yeah. without just being like, well, we'll just reduce the fees. <laughs> um, and now you're kind of building on top and doing the, the education, the uh, interaction with regulators and banks and uh, Mediba for like building the tools to actually use the protocol. Yeah, sorry, I don't have a question. I just think that's very admirable. <laughs> Thank you. That's really cool. That's really cool to hear. Well, you know, I think that we wouldn't do this. I, w I think we wouldn't do all of this if we didn't really believe in the power that infrastructure gives to democratizing finance. It really enables, it's really an enabler. Um, but if I were to be self-critical on, on one aspect of, of um, our work, it's probably that we haven't uh, done enough. And, and maybe that's, we haven't done enough educating and raising awareness around Mellon on a global basis. You know, we've been very kind of Swiss European focused. I'm not sure that we're as recognized in the US as we should be, um, given we were one of the first and maybe, maybe even the first, but one, definitely one of the first DeFi protocols to start developing, but also one of the first to ever go to mainnet. Um, I think the complexity of our protocol and the, the abilities of our protocol are powerful in terms of what they can enable users to do. And I think that's something that we need to think about going forward, how to improve our community outreach, you know, not just to big wealthy economies, but also how do we get into China? How do we get into Russia? How do we get into um, India? How do, you know, translating documentation, um, finding local representatives who can help us build communities there? Yeah, I think a lot of people feel like they didn't do a good job with education, <laughs> uh, not just you. Yeah. Um, but also like the 
2017 bubble caught a lot of people off guard. Yeah. And we're talking about protocols that are kind of analogous to like TCP. And mm. you, know, you didn't really have to go around explaining TCP to everybody who wants to use Amazon That's or something. Yeah. And so everyone's like, wait a minute, what's this blockchain yeah. thing? And wait, a, why do we have to explain this? Yeah. So. I think ultimately, though, the view we took at the time, because we were conscious of the fact that we were putting this on the back burner, we need to build something first before we start marketing, you know, before we start too much community outreach. There needs to be something there. But I think now there is something there. There's something that is good enough to be really called an MVP on the mainnet, which will over time become something is, which is production ready, you know. And, and I think now is really the time to start spreading the word because there's something tangible for people to play around with, to test out. And we just need to focus on building ways into that, which are as user-friendly as possible, because ultimately your end users are not going to be technical and they don't not, they're not going to care whether you're using the latest, coolest, you know, <laughs> technology out there. They're just going to, they're just going to care if they can buy, sell a fund, you know, check, check performance, make some kind of interesting educational assessments out of it and get access to, to, to finance basically. Yeah. So with uh, Melon, Madiba and Mama, where are the best places for people to follow you or keep track of what you're doing? So our Twitter account, Melon Protocol, uh, is very active. We're also very active on Melon Project in Reddit. We're on LinkedIn. Our Medium post is very active. Again, it's uh, Melon Protocol. And the Melon Protocol Medium post is interesting because we've opened it up to all members of the community. So anyone can basically pitch an article as long as it's related to or interested in interesting to Melon. So it can be, you know, the association Mama, it can be Ash Finance, it can be Madiba, it can be anyone. So for all amalgamated news, I would I would stick to Medium or Twitter, which is Melon Protocol. Okay. And for developers, uh, you actually have a, an SDK out people can go use. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, we have uh, documentation all on GitHub under Melon Project. If you have any questions, we're also, we have a developer hub in the Gitter, in a Gitter channel. Um, and yeah, we're, we're happy to help. We're always in interested and excited to have more developers on, on Melon. Thank you for coming on, Mona. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Relay Chain. We'd love to keep in touch. Follow us on Twitter at Relay Chain or email podcast at parity.io. Our team at Parity includes some of the leading peer-to-peer -peer networking developers, consensus algorithm inventors, blockchain innovators, and Rust developers. If you want to learn more about our work or want to work with us, visit our website at parity.io and sign up for our newsletter at parity.io newsletter. 